Good morning. We're going to be in uh, Romans chapter 8 again, coming to the end of our series in Romans. And we're going to be looking at verses uh, 28 to, to 30 this morning. So it'll be really helpful if you had a Bible or an app uh, to have that in front of you to make sure that what I'm saying is actually what's in God's Word, and I'm not making it up. So, let me just read. I'm going to read from uh, verse 26 through to, to verse 30. Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called, He also justified." And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is God's precious word to us this morning. Um, Life can sometimes feel wearying at best or sometimes futile at worst. And, And I guess last week we were looking at how this makes us groan inwardly. Uh, with words that we just don't have in ourselves to, to express the depth of anguish that we feel sometimes in our soul. And things happen to us in life that we just, we just can't make any sense of from time to time, and we find it difficult to come to terms with them. Uh, situations and circumstances may arise. Some of those may be resolved. Some of those, like Brexit, may not be resolved. <laughs> Um, and, and, and we have to face the realities that, that some of these things just don't work out the way that we want them to work out. Unfortunately, loved ones die from sickness. Family conflicts go on unresolved. And we often get frustrated with our physical and our mental limitations in and of ourselves. And, and the question this morning is really, how should we as Christians approach this uncomfortable reality that we live with? How do we tackle questions like, where is God in all of this? And thankfully, God has put these verses in our Bibles this morning. God in these verses pulls back the veil, opens the curtain, and He lets us see beyond the visible things, the seen things, the experiential things, and He opens up a world that we just cannot see or cannot fathom. There are eternal depths of truth in these words that we've just read this morning, and it's my job to try and illumine those for us, and and hopefully, by God's help, I'll be able to do that. Jonathan Edwards uh, once said, in truth, 
The ideas and images in men's minds are the invisible powers that governs them. And it's often how we think about things and the, the unseen things that actually determine how we approach life in these circumstances. And the question is, how do we find rock-solid security in the quicksands of difficulty? How do we find rock-solid security in the quicksands of difficulty? And that's what these verses address this morning. So the first question that we come to when we look at these verses, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. What does Paul mean by the word good? Because, you see, if we start with the wrong understanding of what good is, then many of us will be sorely disappointed with what this life throws at us. Paul is writing to Christians in Rome. This is the capital city of its day. It's the epicenter of the whole Roman Empire. It's the center of government. It's the center of commerce. And it's got all of the trappings of wealth and affluence that go with that. It's a place where you can find all manner of virtues and entertainments and vices and decadence. It's an overcrowded city. And life is extremely arduous for those on the fringes of that city. For those who are outside of the ruling classes, life is tough. And living as a Christian in that environment is horrendously tough. You are at complete odds with the culture that's around you as a Christian. And a few years after Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, the Emperor Nero severely persecuted those Christians. This is the, the infamous emperor who played his harp while Rome burned for nine days. And Nero covered some of those Christians in wax, and he set them on fire as torches in, his, in the palace gardens. Some of them, some of these same people that Paul wrote this letter to, were sewn up in wild animal skins and thrown to packs of dogs to be mauled to death. And you just have to look down a few verses at verse 35 to see other things that Paul refers to. He says words like tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. What images come to your mind when you think of those things? And Paul himself and not long after this, uh, he writes this letter, he'll actually go to Rome, he'll be imprisoned in Rome, and then finally put to death for his faith. And all of these things are in Paul's mind when he's writing these words, God causes all things, all things to work together for good. None of these things in and of themselves are good. In fact, they're evil. And down through the centuries, right to the present day, Christians are subject to persecution to varying degrees. And we all experience life and difficulties in life and hardships in life to one degree or another, whether that's through physical or mental illness, whether it's breakdowns in relationships, whether it's being betrayed by closest friends who we thought were for us, whether it's through job losses whether it's through the tedium of just going about your daily business and work. There is all manner of anxiety and distress in life. 
And did Jesus not say, sufficient unto the day is its own trouble? So clearly the good that Paul has in view in verse 28 is not material comfort in this life. And please don't listen to preachers out there who proclaim a health and wealth and prosperity gospel because that is not what Jesus promised. Never once did He promise that to Christians. In fact, He says the opposite. In John 15, verse 20, He says, if they persecuted Me, they will also persecute you. And in John 15, verse 33, He goes on to say, in the world you will have tribulation. As Christians, all of the world, all of hell is arraigned against you, and trouble will come. So, if that's not the good that Paul's talking about, what then is the good that God causes to come out of these things? And if you look down at verse 29 in in Romans 8, we get an answer to that, and we find the good as defined like this. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. The good is to be conformed to the image of His Son. And in verse 30, He goes on to say that we will be glorified. So, if the ultimate good in the entire universe is defined by God Himself, and if Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, and the perfect, sinless human being, then what greater good is there than to be like Jesus? That's the good that Paul's referring to. All things work together to make us like Jesus Christ. That's what good means. And if you want to see and think about what good means, then look no further than Jesus and look at Scriptures on what is Jesus described as in Scriptures. Sinless, perfect, holy, humble, self-sacrificing. He emptied Himself of everything to be nailed to a cross. He's loving. He's wise. He was despised and rejected by men. He's the way, the truth, the life, the chief shepherd. He's fearless. He's acquainted with grief. He sympathizes with our sorrows. He's the Lion of Judah. He's the Lamb who was slain. He's the firstborn of the dead. He's our great high priest. He's the high king, the king above all kings. He's the Lord above all lords. He is faithful. He is true. His eyes are like flames of fire that penetrate to our hearts. He is crowned with not just one crown, but with many crowns. He is the Word. He's the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and who is now seated at the right hand of the Father on high. As you look at Jesus and all that He is, is that how you would define ultimate good? Is that the good that you want more than anything else in this life? Or do you perhaps define the ultimate good that you aspire to by some other standard? Perhaps it's enjoying a healthy body. Maybe it's having sufficient money to have a comfortable life or an easy retirement. Or perhaps it's just being able to have a trouble-free life and happy times with your family. 
our response to that question brings into sharp focus the subject of the who that this verse is talking about. To whom does God cause all things to work together for good? Does He do it for everybody on the planet if the ultimate good is to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ? If you go back and look at verse 28, it says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. As we've seen the whole way through Romans 8, the Bible categorizes people into two groups. There are those who live according to the flesh, and there are those who live according to the Spirit. There are those who have the Spirit of Christ, and there are those who don't have the Spirit of Christ. And now in verse 28, we see the division expressed in a different way. There are those who love God, and there are those who don't love God. And there's no middle ground in here. There's no means of just sitting on the fence when it comes to your love for God. You can't be ambivalent about it. You either love Him or you don't love Him. So if good is defined as being conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ, then can you see how this action of God is reserved exclusively for those who love Him? Why would God act to bring someone who rejects Jesus into conformance with the very thing that they reject and despise and dismiss? Why would God act against their will? But conversely, there is great hope and assurance for anyone who loves God. God is causing all things to work together for ultimate good if you love God. And we know just how far short of Christ's glory we fall, and we know just how much God loves His Son. He has exalted Him to the highest place of honor, and God's desire for you as a Christian is to make you the perfect image of His Son. And that's the stunning reality, that God works together for that end in our lives. And there's nothing outside of that word, all, all things. All the good things we experience, all the bad stuff that, we, that happens to us, all of the pain, all of the difficulties, all of the joys, all of the sorrows, everything we experience. God takes it all and He uses it to chisel away everything in us that doesn't look like His Son. And this shouldn't be a surprise to us. At the beginning of verse 28, Paul says, and we know. He's speaking to the Romans. This is objective truth. This doesn't depend on our feelings. Does it hurt when bad stuff happens? Of course it hurts. We feel every single hammer blow on the anvil. And we feel the searing heat of that flame as it strips and burns away the dross from our hearts. But there is no greater comfort than knowing that no matter how painful it gets, no matter how difficult it feels at the time, God isn't a vindictive God. He's doing it for our good. And these aren't some random acts of an impersonal universe or some random acts of a vindictive or tyrannical God. Rather, God in His love and in His mercy uses all of these things to bring about ultimate good. God will do absolutely everything that's necessary to bring us into conformance with the image of His Son. 
right up to our last breath, and then we'll be instantly ushered into glory and His presence, and we will be transformed in His likeness forever. One day we will be glorified, and we will be conformed to the image of, this, of His Son. I want to now move on and think about how is this accomplished. And we get to some of these just amazing truths in God's Word uh, as we look at verses 29 and 30. At the end of verse 28, Paul says, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. So, we've just looked at one side of the coin. From our perspective, God works together for good because we love Him. But on the other side of the coin, it's the very same coin, Paul now looks at it from God's eternal perspective. And just listen to how he expands this out in verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. In these two verses, Paul takes us right to the very top of the mountain. And there's now absolutely nothing that's obstructing our view of eternal truths. If you're a Christian, this is God's eyes view of your life and your existence. And the view is absolutely stupendous. It's breathtaking in its scope. It's absolutely immense. Paul stretches out for us on one horizon. He looks to eternity past, and on the other horizon is eternity future. That's the full expanse of what's captured in this, these two short verses. And our eyes are drawn to those horizons and everything in between. And we need to just stop and pause and take the view in for a minute and notice and pay attention to a few things. There's a golden chain in these words that consists of five interlocking links. And those links stretch from one horizon to the other horizon. And each of those links has a word inscribed on it. Two of those links are in the eternity past, so the words foreknew and predestined are outside of time in the past. There are two links of the chain within the scope of our time, and those are the words called and justified. And there's another link that's disappearing over the horizon, which is called glorified. It goes in right into the eternal future, glorified. And those five links in that chain are completely unbroken and unbreakable. And they stretch from the farthest reaches of before time to the farthest reaches of eternity, beyond our imagination. Now I want you to identify something. Who is the active agent and who is the recipient of these actions? The phrase, those whom, comes up four times in these two short verses. And the word he is used eight times. The those whom being referred to goes back to what we considered in verse 28. These actions apply to anyone who loves God. And the he that's been referred to is none other than God the Father. So he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, and he glorified. 
All of this is 100% God's doing and 0% our doing. This is all grace. There's nothing that we can do to be foreknown because we just weren't there before eternity. There's nothing that we can do to be predestined. There is nothing that we can do to be called. There is nothing that we can do to be justified. And there's nothing we can do to be glorified. But God can and does all those things. And if you notice the verb tense, these are all translated from Greek into the English past tense. How come it's possible to refer to something that hasn't happened yet in eternity future, glorified, in the past tense? For most, of us, uh, for most of us in this room, I hope at least the first four of these things are already a reality in your life. There are probably some of you here who have been foreknown by God, who have been predestined by God, but you haven't yet responded to God's call, and you haven't yet been justified. And the fact that all of us are sitting in this room conscious, or maybe barely conscious for some of us, means that none of us have been glorified yet. Yet that word is in the past tense, glorified. God is sovereign. We've been singing about that this morning. He ultimately controls all things for all time. And if He decided in eternity past that something should happen, if He decided to set His love upon you in eternity past and predestine you, then He will call you you will respond effectively to that call. He will justify you, and if He's gone to all of the trouble to justify you with Christ's death on the cross, then He will secure your eternal glory. It's a done deal. There's nothing more secure than that. Therefore, Paul can refer to something that hasn't yet happened in the past tense. There is no greater security available. This chain cannot be broken by anyone or anything, whether in the physical realm or the spiritual realm. It's just not possible. Those links were forged in the blood of Christ, and they're sealed by the blood of Christ. And nothing can break them apart. And that's why all those five words are in the past tense. If God decides something, He will accomplish it. Psalm 135, verses 5 and 6 says, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. If God says He's going to make something work for our good, and if He says He's going to glorify us, He will do that. It's as good as done. So let's just have a look at these links in this unbroken chain. Number one, foreknew. What does it mean to be foreknown by God? And this isn't God looking down the tunnel of time and trying to figure out who's going to be receptive to His call. This isn't about God knowing something about us. Scott referred to it when he prayed this morning. This isn't God having information about us ahead of time. This is God choosing us. This is God knowing us. This is God being in relationship with us. Listen to some verses that speak of how God knows His people. In Exodus 33 and verse 17, God is speaking to Moses, and He says this, "'This very thing that you have spoken, 
I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Psalm uh, chapter 1, verse 6, For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. In Jeremiah, if you remember, Jeremiah is called Jeremiah. Uh, in, in chapter 1, God says to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And Jesus, speaking of people who come to him in the last day in Matthew, says this, And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. This knowing is much more than just having information. This is about deep, loving, intimate, covenantal relationship. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 3 says, But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So do you see how this word known is used? This is about God's covenant relationship with you, with his people. This is a deep, intimate, loving relationship. And the closest thing that we can experience as human beings with another person is the intimacy of marriage between a man and a woman. That's the, close, that's the same language that the Bible uses to talk about God's knowing us. That's the depth of knowledge. To be foreknown by God is for Him to set His saving love upon us before the beginning of time. That's staggering. What comes next? Number two, predestined. God, in His foreknowledge, predetermines the final destination for those He sets His love upon, and He predestines us to be conformed to the image of His Son, and He predestines us to an eternity of good in the fullness of that glory of His Son. And not only does He predetermine the destination, but He also predetermines the means to get there. And there's no greater example of that in Scripture than the cross. The cross was not God's plan B. God doesn't do plans B or C or D or E. There is only one plan, and it's plan A. So before God created anything, before Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, before sin or evil came into this world, God's plan was to send His Son Jesus Christ to die on a cross and secure the salvation of His people, the people He foreknew. This was no afterthought. This wasn't God scrabbling around trying to figure out, oh, no, what, now what I'm going to do? How are we going to salvage this situation that's gone bad? No, this was God's plan right from eternity past. And the clearest perspective we were given on this is found in the book of Acts. In the very first sermon that Peter preaches after the day of Pentecost, he, he preaches these words. He says in, in Acts 2, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And in Acts 4, when the, the, the disciples are facing persecution for the first time, they pray these words to God. They say, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, 
both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. I don't understand how this works, but the Bible clearly teaches God's sovereignty over all things, and yet we as humans bear responsibility for our actions and our choices and our decisions. Herod and Pontius Pilate one day will stand before God and give an account for what they did to His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on that cross, as will we all. God will hold each and every one of us to account for the decisions and the actions that we take in this life. But all of this is wrapped up in God's plan. God isn't responsible for sin. He is holy and He cannot sin, but He is able to control the consequences of that sin, and He is able to take that and and use it for good. One way I've heard this expressed is that God causes some things, God allows other things, but God controls all things. God is sovereign over all things. So now we've looked at eternity past and the first two links in the chain, let me come to today, to time. And the first one, the first we're going to look at is called the means of grace God uses to put His plan of salvation into, your, into motion in your life today is to call you. And this isn't just hearing God's call. To be called by God is actually to be summoned by Him. It includes our positive response to that call and acceptance of that call. If you remember Lazarus, Jesus goes to Lazarus's tomb The body has been in the grave for at least four days by the time Jesus shows up. And Jesus asks for the stone to be removed. The stone's taken away from the grave. And Jesus calls out, Lazarus, come out. And what happens? A dead man walks out of the grave. How does that happen? When God speaks, stuff happens. His word is all-powerful. He called the entire universe into existence by the word of His mouth. So if you hear God's calling you today, even right now as you listen to this word being preached, then it demands a response. And please, please don't resist His call. So that's called. The number four is justified. In the very moment, in that very moment that you respond to God's call and accept His call in your life and faith, something absolutely radical happens. You are changed forever. You're changed from one state to another state. And because this chain of salvation is unbroken and stretches into the future, that change in state doesn't change no matter what happens to you for the rest of your life. It's an unchanging state. We move from darkness into light We move from standing condemned under God's wrath to being set free in Christ, and nothing can change that. The penalty that Christ paid on the cross for your sin and for my sin is realized, and His righteousness is transferred to us in that moment that you accept His call in your life and faith. 
Back at the beginning of Romans 8, in chapter, uh, chapter uh, in verse 1 of Romans 8, Paul declares, there is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are declared righteous by God once and for all. That's what justification means. And once it happens, it can't change. And you can't respond to God's call in your life and not be radically changed by that. Your affections will be altered for all time. And you will see or begin to see the ultimate good that's bound up in Jesus Christ, His Son. And you will want to pursue that as the greatest love in your life. That's the radical change that comes about in every Christian. And the final link in the chain is the inevitable outcome of that justification. Your future is secure and guaranteed. You will be glorified one day. If you're justified, then God's promise of being conformed to the likeness of His Son is a certainty. And throughout this life, He will cause all things to work together to make you more like His Son. And ultimately, you will share in the future glory for His Son for all eternity. God the Father will glorify the people He has bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you've responded to God's call, then as soon as you exhale your final breath on this earth, when your heart beats for the final time, you will immediately be caught up into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God will bring you safely home. And nothing can change that. So here we have this golden chain stretching from eternity past on one horizon and stretching over the horizon in the other direction. And every link in that chain is securely fastened by the blood of Jesus Christ. And this is what God does for everyone who calls upon His name. If you, live God, if you love God, irrespective of what life may throw at you, all of the joys, all of the anxiety, all of the distress, all the hardships, all of the sickness, all the difficulties, all the fractured relationships, God won't let a single one of those experiences go to waste, good or bad. And if you love God, you can be absolutely certain that when you go to sleep tonight, that you are completely secure in Christ, completely secure in Christ. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, how can I be sure that this applies to me? Then there are a couple of things I would say to you. You would never contemplate accepting an offer of something from someone if you didn't believe the person who was offering you that could actually deliver. So if I were to come to your house and say, I'll give you 10 billion pounds for your house, you would probably look at me like, yeah, right. There's no way in the world you're gonna accept an offer from me because you know that I don't have the capacity to make good on that offer. But God offers you something much, much greater than that today. God offers you a loving, intimate relationship with Himself from now throughout eternity in His glorious presence. And all He asks for is a simple act of faith in return to accept His call. And as we've seen in these verses in Romans, it's precisely because of God's sovereignty, it's precisely because of God's sovereignty over all things that God can make good on His promise. 
that God can make good on this offer of salvation. And Romans 10 verse 13 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That familiar verse, John 3, 16, whosoever believes in me, whosoever. There is no greater or more secure offer available to anyone for all time. And all you have to do is simply call on his name. And will you respond to that call this morning? God is waiting with wide open arms, waiting for you to welcome you in. We've just stood on the mountaintop and we've just surveyed from one horizon to another. And we've seen the whole scene of God's plan for salvation laid out before us in these short verses. But now I want you to come with me, and this is the last thing we're going to look at. I want you to come with me and look at what lies over that horizon. Because God working for your good, God working for my good, is only a part of the story. If you look back at verse 29, in the very end of the verse, God talks about His purposes, and why is God conforming us to the image of His Son? What's God got, to, what's God got going for Him in that? It says this, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. If you look at Revelation chapter 7, verse 11, we get a glimpse of what's beyond that horizon. This is John's vision of what he sees in heaven and eternity. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God the Father is gathering together a great multitude of people, people who Jesus will call brother and sister. And every single one of those people in that multitude is known personally by name by God because He has he's secured their salvation. And the reason He's doing this is to put on display the preeminence, the supremacy of Christ in and through and over all things. And we get to play a part in that. Have you ever been caught up in the euphoria of a crowd? Maybe at a sports match, or maybe at a concert, or maybe even at a worship service somewhere. That experience will be absolutely nothing compared to the day when you stand in the greatest multitude ever assembled in one place, where everyone is gathered singing God's praises and singing the praises of the Lamb, glorifying the Son. That's what lies over the horizon. So how do we take some of these truths and apply them to our lives today? I'm just going to close with a few suggestions. Number one, soak in these truths this week and let them inspire you to worship. Number two, be assured that no matter how difficult the circumstances you're facing or will face, God cannot and will not let go of you. He is in control of all things 
and he will not let those things do you any permanent harm. He will cause them all to work together for your good. Ask the Holy Spirit to examine your heart and expose any loves that come before your love of God and repent of them this week. Number four, look to Christ and humbly ask Him to show you afresh His goodness. Take time looking at the Scriptures and looking at the description of what Jesus is like and let your heart be ignited into flame for love for Him. And let the certainty of God's plan of salvation ignite a new and a fresh fire for evangelism. Because if we proclaim the good news, we can be absolutely certain that people will respond to God's call and be saved and brought into the kingdom. Two final things. If you're sitting here this morning and you know that you've messed up this week again for the umpteenth time, and you're feeling lousy about it, then I would ask you simply to come back to God. We're going to have time looking and thinking about what Christ has done for us around this table, but just ask God for His forgiveness again, and you can be completely assured that He is only too willing to extend His grace and forgive you again, and to be sure that it doesn't change anything going into the future. It, you cannot, you can, your sin cannot physically break that chain. And finally, if you're one of those people this morning who hasn't yet responded to God's call, then I would implore you, please, don't hesitate to respond to that call this morning. It's a simple act of faith, and in return, your, secure, your, your future, your eternal future is absolutely secure, and you can be sure that nothing that ever happens to you in this life is wasted or futile or pointless. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for your plan of salvation. Father, we thank you that it stretches from eternity past to eternity future. And we, Father, we just thank you for the security that we can know in you. Lord, I pray that you will well up in us a new desire a new love, a greater love for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, we pray. In his name we ask it. Amen.